Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge, and happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, my name is Brandon Freemian. I am the equipping pastor here at the church. Uh, we are going to be continuing today in our study of Jesus's farewell address. We have been going through a series looking at Jesus's farewell address in John 13 through 17. And we're going to be looking today at John 17 verses 1 through 5. And this is a, to me, a rare and beautiful thing that we get to see. Because as much as we know that Jesus prayed a lot, there are only a few places in Scripture where we get to see the content of what he prayed. And John 17 is one of those places. So I'd like to begin today with reading our text, John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So for the kids out there, I want you to think back to a time when there was something you were looking forward to, but you had to wait a little bit to get it. So I think a great example of this is Christmas Day. So imagine it's, it's after Thanksgiving. You know Christmas is coming, but it's still a few weeks away, right? You know what that feels like, that anticipation, that looking forward to that time when Christmas is finally going to come and you get to celebrate with your family. Or maybe it's a family vacation that you're looking forward to. It's, it's close to summertime, but school's not quite done yet. You've got a couple more weeks, but you know that once school is out, you get to go on that vacation. You get to get in the car, you get to get in the airplane and go with your parents. You know, that feels like that anticipation and how sweet it is when that time finally comes, when you finally get to Christmas, when you finally get to that vacation. Maybe this is more for the parents, but can you also think of a time when maybe there's something hard that you know is coming? Something that maybe you're dreading a little bit. There's that same kind of anticipation, but has a more negative connotation. Maybe it's the big test you have to take, a hard meeting you have to participate in, or a doctor's appointment that you don't really want to go to. Here at the beginning of Jesus' prayer, he says something interesting. He says, Father, the hour has come. And what I'm going to show today is that it had pieces of both of those things involved. It had this anticipation piece to it, but also there was a dread to it. Because the hour 
that he's coming to is the cross. Jesus knows he has, is going to the cross, and he has spent most of his farewell address preparing his disciples for that reality. And now he turns to the Father and says, Father, the hour has come. And the fact that he says that the hour has come means that the hour had not been right up to that point. And in fact, if you go back in John, there's a couple of places where he says, my hour has not yet come. Later on, in John 7, the disciples are getting ready to go to the Feast of Booths. And Jesus refuses to go because he knows there are people there who are ready to kill him. And he says, my hour, my time has not yet come, and he doesn't go. But then later, actually, he does end up secretly going and gets recognized. But no one is able to lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Later on, in 820, Jesus teaches that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees take great offense, but it says they cannot arrest him because his hour had not yet come. It was only starting with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that Jesus started teaching the hour had come for three years of ministry. No one could touch him. And within five days of the triumphal entry, they would have crucified him on the cross. What changed? And the reason is not that the Pharisees and the Sadducees somehow got smarter or stronger. It's not that now Rome was able to get involved. It's not that the crowd suddenly was able to overwhelm things and make things happen. That is not what is going on. The hour had come because the Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Spirit had orchestrated everything to lead up to this moment that this was the hour and God's magnificent, glorious, saving work would be done. And that is why the hour had come. There was no accident here. This was God's doing that made this happen. But it wasn't just about Jesus' lifetime. You can go back into the Old Testament. Right? When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the hour certainly had not come. When Abraham and Sarah had the promised son Isaac, that was very good, but the hour had not yet come. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. That was much needed and very good, but the hour had not yet come. When David was anointed king, the hour had not yet come. When Israel was brought back from captivity and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls, that was all good. That was God working magnificently, but the hour had not yet come because all of that was pointing to and leading up to something greater. It was leading up to this hour and what Jesus is getting ready to do on the cross and in the resurrection is the great inflection point of history. Everything up to that point had been leading up to it, and everything that flows out from it came from that hour. And we are here 2,000 years later, dressed to the nines for Resurrection Sunday because God orchestrated that hour. So... With all of that being involved in this hour, what does Jesus pray for? 
Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I find that striking. That in that moment, what Jesus prays for is glory. He prays that he would be glorified in order that the Father would be glorified. Now, before we get into the explanation of what that means and how that played out, I want to just take a minute to just stand a little bit in awe of what we as the readers of scriptures are getting to see here. Because Jesus is revealing something here about God's internal life. Right? You have the Father and the Son, the Son talking to the Father here. And what we see here is, is hinted at in other places in Scripture, but is probably more clear here than anywhere else, which is that within God himself and the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that there are these patterns of mutually glorifying each other. These patterns of, of love within the Godhead itself. I think we should take a minute to just stand in awe of just God's self-revelation here, what he's showing about who he is. It says later on that God is love, and here we see it playing out inside the God held itself in terms of these mutually glorifying between the Father and the Son. But what I think is also amazing, and what I hope to convince you of today is the ways that we come to participate and benefit from these patterns of mutual love, submission, and glorification taking place in God himself. That this actually leads to our greatest good. So I want to look at first how the Son glorifies the Father, and then we're going to look at how the Father glorifies the Son in this text. So how does the Son glorify the Father? Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So Jesus glorifies the Father by completing the work he was sent to do. Now, what is that work? Certainly, everything up to this point qualifies as part of that work. The teaching, the preaching, the miracles, the declaration of the kingdom of God. Everything that he has been doing is a part of that work. But I also think that as a part of that, that what is about to happen in this hour is absolutely a part of that work too. This work, this primary work even, that Jesus was supposed to do in dying on the cross, taking the punishment for our sin that was supposed to come on us, and then later in the resurrection, the Father raising him up, showing that he had conquered death, that he had conquered sin, and that death no longer had a hold of him. And that work brings tremendous glory to the Father. Why? Because there is no other point in history where God's glory is so much on display, where his power is put on display. It is where God's goodness is put on display. It is where God's mercy is put on display and his justice is put on display. And and just the ways that the height and the depth and the breadth of God's love is put on display, you will not find any place greater than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the glory of God is so evident. 
So by pursuing the work that the Father had sent him to do, the Son is glorifying the Father, and that works out for our salvation. It brings about our greatest good because in God's love, he has worked it out so the way that he receives the most glory brings about our good and salvation. In case you're still not convinced, let's look at how the Father glorifies the Son. And there's two ways that this text talks about that the Father glorifies the Son. One is in verse 3, that he gives him authority to give eternal life. And the other is in verse 5, where Jesus prays that the Father will return him to the glory he had before the foundations of the world. Now, I want to start there in verse 5. What does that mean? Why does Jesus pray that the Father would return him to the glory he had before the foundation of the world? One, I think there's some important clues there about the identity of Jesus, right? That he was there at the foundations of the world. We are getting clearly here Jesus saying, I am God. But what does he mean to be restored? Well, I think a great explanation from the, for this is given in Philippians 2. By Paul. And so I want to go there real quick. We're going to be looking at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Now, in Philippians 2, Paul has been exhorting the Philippians to a life of humility. And he uses Jesus as the primary example of what humility looks like. In verse 5, he says this Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what Paul is saying here is that when, when the Son came to earth, in the incarnation at Christmas, there was a, a giving up of some of his glory. There was a giving up of some of his power in that. And so he experienced the humility of becoming human. He experienced the humility of mortality. Now, you may wonder, how did he do that? How does... A portion of the Trinity become incarnate and give up some of that power and glory in the process. I'll tell you, I don't know. It's God. He did it, though. He stepped into the humility of humanity. But more than that, Jesus talks about how he was willing to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though his humility was not just in the incarnation, but it went further than that. Because he was willing to die. And not just die, he was willing to die on the cross, which was the most painful and humiliating way that the Romans had come up with to put someone to death. But more than that, it was painful because he had taken on the sin that was not his. He had suffered that humility as well. So, 
you can see how this was a day of both dread and expectation. From the standpoint of history, from the standpoint of our salvation, Christ's death and resurrection was that moment of anticipation that had been waited for, that everyone had looked for. They had been looking for Messiah, and Messiah had come. It was this great, this day of great anticipation that we look back on and celebrate. And yet, for Jesus, it was a day of dread. It was a day that in the garden, he prayed to the Father, please take this cup from me. Why did he do it? Why did he face that day of dread so that we might see that day as a day of anticipation? Two reasons I see in the scripture. The love of us and the glory of the Father. That's why he did it. And so here in John 17, knowing that he is getting ready to face that kind of humiliation, he prays to the Father to restore him to the glory that he had at the foundation of the world. And brothers and sisters, God answered that prayer. Paul goes on in Philippians 2. He says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Father answered the Son's petition. He first exalted him in the resurrection, showing that he had conquered sin and death. And then he exalted him in the ascension. And someday also he will exalt him so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And this is what brings the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father and our greatest good. Now, if you're still not convinced, let's look at the second way that the Father glorifies the Son. He says in verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Father exalts the Son by giving him the authority to give eternal life. And what is that eternal life? He defines it here as knowing the Father and the Son. So through Jesus' work, through the work that he does in his death and resurrection on the cross, we have an opportunity for a renewed relationship with the Father and the Son. Now, why is that eternal life? I want to point you back to a couple chapters previous where Jesus talks about that you have to abide in him. And that is where the branches find life is by being connected to the vine. You see, the father and the son, God himself is the very source of life. And so by having a restored relationship with him, 
we now have access to eternal life. And that is not just about quantity of life. It is about that because we have the hope that we will share in the resurrection and that death will not be the end. But it's also about quality of life because we now can live with in this new life in Christ in relationship with a God who so obviously deeply loves us and cares about our well-being and even in pursuing his own glory seeks our own good. But it even goes a step beyond that. Now, my apologies to Nikki, because I'm about to steal a little bit of thunder from the text that she's going to be preaching on. But later on, in John 17, 24, Jesus asks something else of the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So earlier, Jesus prayed for the restoration of his glory. Here, when he's praying for us, he prays that someday we would get to join him and see it. And I would say, if we can look back and see that the Father granted the petition of the Son in verse 5 and restored him to glory, then we should have confidence that he will also answer the call of the Son in verse 24. And for those of us that have put faith in Christ, we will indeed someday stand and get to behold the glory of Jesus Christ face to face. And I find that to be such a source of hope and a great comfort to me to know that those that we have lost, and I feel like we have lost so many in the last couple years, are now beholding Jesus in that glory, that the Father is already doing the work of fulfilling Jesus' request that we would see him for those that have gone before us, and that someday we will get to join him in beholding that glory. Praise Jesus. And through that, our own joy will finally come to its fullness. So today is Easter. And although probably the resurrection is something we should think about a lot, today's where we remember it. And that, I think, is the big call today. To see the glory of what Jesus did. To see the glory of Christ in it, see the glory of the Father in it, and remember the resurrection and the death of Jesus and what that has gotten for us. But it's also a call to remember the new life that we have. The call that we have to walk into the way of Jesus, the call that, like Jesus, to be willing to suffer our own humilities in order that the glory of the Father might be shown in the world. And for those of you here who have put your faith in Christ, I want to invite you today to remember that, to consider that, to see afresh the glory of it. I think so often we look at the cross and the, and the resurrection, and rightly we look at it from the perspective of what it has done for us. But I think this passage here in John 17 also calls us to revel in the way that God was glorified in what happened in that hour. 
But for those of you who have not put your faith in Jesus, my hope is that today has given you a new look at what Jesus did for us and why he did it. He has provided a way for us to have a restored relationship with God. And by extension, he has provided a way to eternal life that is not just about a quantity of life to be experienced someday, but also a quality of life that begins when you put your faith in him. A quality of life lived with a God and for God that loves you so much. And it's offered to you as a gift. It's not something you have to work for. It's something that Jesus bought for you on the cross. And to receive that gift, we need to be willing to confess that we have sinned against God, be willing to confess to him that we need him to save us and believe the truth that Jesus died on our behalf and rose again, showing that he conquered sin death. So I'm about to go into a time of prayer, and I want to invite you, if you have not put your faith in Christ, to pray to him now. Confess your sin to him. Ask him to save you. And confess to him that you believe in what he has done. He has orchestrated history, literally orchestrated history in order to provide us the opportunity of salvation. And I want to invite you to accept that gift today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, the day that was most anticipated for our salvation was also the day of great dread for Jesus. And we thank you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for providing a way for us to be restored in our relationship to you. And thank you for showing who you are and your character. Thank you that you are a God of love. And Lord, we, we remember now what you have done for us. And Lord, we confess that we need your salvation. We need you to save us from our sin. We need that resurrected life that we only find in you. Lord, we love you and give you all the praise and the glory. In your name, amen. If today you have put your faith in Christ, we would love the opportunity to meet with you. So um, if you're here in the service today, I'd, I'd love it if you'd come see me or, or see Matt or John, one of our elders. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to continue in seeking after Jesus. If you're online right now, uh, there is a, a the QR code that we've been using for our contact. You can just fill that out and someone will get back with you and would love to talk to you about that.